0: Hey there, Scott here from Social Energy Presents, and we'd like to thank you for joining us. Please like, share and subscribe to support this and other great content. We've got a real treat for you with a very special episode featuring one of the music industry's most respected lead guitarists, whose indelible work has helped shape the music landscape for millions of fans worldwide for nearly five decades. Our guest today is Keith Scott, a Canadian rock musician best known for his long-term association, with international music legend Brian Adams, for whom he's played lead guitar since 1981. Keith has collaborated on virtually every album and iconic song associated with Brian's extensive music catalogue, spanning 14 studio albums, 6 live albums, 6 compilation albums and countless hit singles. Keith is known for his electrifying live performances and on-stage chemistry that he shares with Brian as they continue to tour internationally. The incomparable guitar legend Eddie Van Halen held Keith in high regard as one of his favorite all-time guitarists. Keith has also been credited for his songwriting skills on more than 140 songs with some of music's most influential recording artists, including Cher, Tina Turner, David Bowie, Rod Stewart, Barbara Streisand and Elton John, just to name a few. And today, Keith joins us from his home in San Diego, California for an intimate look at his career and to bring us up to speed on what he's working on next. So sit back, relax, and get ready. A Social Energy now presents you with your backstage pass.
1: So you're at home right now.
2: Yeah, I go. I actually leave tomorrow for another leg in America with Brian. So
1: yeah, where where are you heading? Like East Coast, West uh, Coast. Yeah.
2: Uh, Houston. So we just started in the East Coast last trip It was about two and a half weeks, and my last show was in Tampa. Okay. And then came home for a few days on Thursday, and out I go again. So that's nice. If you hear any peripheral noise, there some guys working on the on the property uh, doing some landscaping, and there's for some reason there's a Air Force um, or. or uh, Coast Guard helicopter doing training in the valley here, so I'll show you kind of where we are It's this sort of long valley I'm inland uh inland about two miles so from the coast so.
1: like what area is that
2: it's uh just north north county San Diego, which is encinitas uh Surfers paradise, whatever you want to call it so. I don't
1: think I've ever been to san diego've yes. I've been all over yeah. California but I don't think I've ever hit San Diego
2: it's about 80 miles south of Los Angeles so uh ah. it's a long story how i got here but uh, i've been here 15 years i moved down in july of 2008 yeah well, so, well, well tell me <laughs> why, why why did
1: you move there how did that happen
2: uh, no, nothing specific really um just a bunch of things that kind of appealed to us uh, my kids were quite young my my daughter was 6 my son was 3 going on 4 and uh, i just think we started to reevaluate i I guess the initial idea came as the year previous which was 2007. um, my brother-in-law lived down here uh, my partner's uh, brother and we'd come down in the winter when the kids were small especially like january when it was a month of piss and rain in vancouver and it was like 65 degrees here in january so um it was you know something to do we'd come down for a weekend or something and meet up and hang out in their house and go to the beach and i think at one point we were going back to my in-laws house and um in rancho penasquitas and i i look at this property and i said what where is what is this a sort of difference like ranch houses and property and horses and stuff shows oh, rancho Santa Fe," and i said to my partner yeah, I wonder what property costs around here. It was just a you know a notion. So, <laughs> come back off a tour about three weeks later, and she's partners on the computer. And she says, I said, What are you doing? She says, oh, I'm looking at houses in San Diego. I said, "We you thinking of going back? Because my partner's from Missouri. Yeah. And, uh, and I said, She says, I don't know. And I said, Okay, well, check it out. I'm curious myself. And then that kind of started a process of, as soon as we said that to my in-laws, they were like, oh my gosh, we would love to have you here. Of course, yeah. So that uh, that kind of started it. And a couple of my colleagues had already lived here. Uh Gallet used to run Brian's studio, Deb Critton, had moved here with MP3, Jim Rondinelli and all that. they moved down and set up office here before it got bought out. But uh, drummer in the Hooters, uh, Dave Osikinen, lived here. There was a handful of people I knew, including Jim. And uh, I remember doing a casino the year before we moved uh, just north of here. And they all came out like the Chamber of Commerce. Oh, we heard you might come. It's so great. So they kind of sold me on the idea. And we just started the process. And it took about a year. So we had to kind of dissolve a bunch of situations there up in Vancouver and then come here. And coincidentally, at that time, uh, Brian had decided he was going to go be a solo performer. For about a year or so, so everything kind of made sense. On top of the fact that we went hit a massive economic downturn at that time uh, for the world, right. so it was a lot of things that happened coincidentally. Anyway, that's kind of so that. Did that reflect the price of your property down there? Would the, had the prices well, dropped? Uh Yes, but not until maybe a couple of years after uh, things uh, were a little bit low. It's harder to sell at that point, I think. for And we were able to do okay you know but i think two years later things were half worth half because nobody was doing anything and it was a unique time anyway just to be anywhere so uh, <laughs> but like, the the best part about that was the dollar was the same it wasn't there was no difference it was at
1: time.
2: It. and it was total total luck and coincidence so everything moves south all the you know all that equity thing moved Without incident, You know, it was just perfect. And now, of course, it's 30% again or whatever it is, 25 I can't remember. I mean, just little things, you know.
1: One of those things that was brought to my attention, of course, I didn't pay attention when I was younger, but a lot of, while well, you were in my childhood, the Canadian dollar was worth more
2: than the American dollar. At at certain points, yeah, Yeah. I remember that. And I think traditionally in the last 30 years, it has unfortunately been the other way. But um, that was that rare occasion for about a year or two that the currency was virtually at par. So, you know, and I think it crept close again at maybe the onset of COVID. my, 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 it was like maybe 5 or 10% away or something. I, I can't remember. I, I rarely keep track of that stuff. But I just thought that all that stuff was interesting and coincidental at the time. So anyway, so I've been here 15 years, and my kids are great. My daughter's at UBC and are going into her fourth year this fall. My son what's, just graduated. What's she taking? Uh, she's uh, international uh, relations and biz. So oh. uh, her, this coming year, we're kind of set in in stone what she'll actually embrace and she's actually considering law she's doing a pre-law thing and i don't know but she's doing great up there she has a little flat on the campus that we went for her and uh loves being there. couldn't wait to go back she's done with being in california she doesn't want i mean she's fine to come back and visit but she prefers to be in canada All right And uh so honestly, she's in uvic like on the island here no, no, she's at UBC. Uh, in, oh, in, oh like, UBC, sorry. Yeah, so she's she's got in. She did a local uh, year and transferred uh, right in the middle of COVID. So, yeah, that turned out great. I have a lot of friends that are part of that whole system. Uh, a gal I met uh, years ago when I lived there. She's an administrator at UBC, and she kind of watched out for her. And of course, many, many friends uh, uh, that actually watch over her and keep her occupied. My, my good friend Jim Cusenza, he uh, knows the Acalini's really well, right? And uh, he has this kind of a rescue program that he takes kids off the street in the East Van, where he's from, and gets them involved in the media and uh, film and uh, it just it's done an amazing job. It's been his kind of his real purpose in life, and a really incredible human being, and devoted to helping and making the world better. So he's always offering my daughter tickets to things like the hockey games and concerts and stuff like that. And she's you know, we were really lucky to have these connections, and it's been great. So and she's thriving. I'm just so proud of her, and my son too, who who's done really well down here. I mean, I, I, kids, I think. Have really struggled the last few years emotionally and, and there's a lot of stuff underlying with what they've had to you know endure with a lockdown and not seeing people and you know i mean your formative years that's how you develop relationships and how you learn to interact with you know both sides of, of gender wise so i think it messed guys especially young boys up a lot and we know some families that are you know, a little bit struggling, a little bit that way. but Well, uh, even anyways. adults. Even adults. I mean, I've
1: noticed w- with my wife, Kelly, and, and stuff, like there used to be interaction with people all the time. And then, of course, when everybody went into the respective corners during the, uh, the, the, uh, the, the pandemic, now it's kind of hard to get everybody back out again. Like, yeah. you, you know, you, you'll hang out with select people, not the whole gang like you used to. And it's not because you have anything against them. You've just, over the course of a couple of years, you've sort of changed your lifestyle. Yeah. You know, it's
2: amazing yeah. how fast that can happen. I agree. And I think it, it, we're not out of this emotionally yet. I think that there's a social stigma that's developed because of it or in just coincidentally or whatever. And I think we've got a long way to go to sort of let our shoulders drop a bit more. We're all kind of looking over our shoulders. What's next? If it isn't some pandemic, it's economic downfall. You know what I mean? Is yeah. Politically here, it's so magnified that way. They, they politicize everything, every choice you make, every process you have is you're either with us or you're against us and there's an well, we, we, we see it
1: from canada from our perspective looking down there but we're, we're even sort of seeing that in canada which is i never thought would happen i mean the, from you know the last time i saw that kind of stuff happen was back in the flq days you know yeah yeah i remember i had to write a
2: project in high school on that because it was 69 70 or something around there and yeah i had to do a social studies project based on all that and it was yeah.
0: It was yeah. an interesting
2: time, but nothing compared to what we are doing now. I mean, considering, I mean, that was a to me an isolated, although it was big news, really big news at the time. But it was
1: really rare for Canada, especially.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, considering the you know a pretty benign dem- democracy in the world, uh, they had actually people you know going out of their way to harm other people to declare their political agenda. So. I remember that, even though it was isolated to the French-speaking part, it was yeah. um, it was a big deal. But nothing compared to what we got going here. This is like borderline anarchy if you if you dig it too far. I know. <laughs> well, yeah, it's just I know. it's interesting, but uh, I don't know. Watch think, everything
1: you say with people.
2: Yeah, I mean, I it's become where you know not just politically, just socially, where you have to be careful what you say. You know, what our generation inherited a lot of. You know, bias from our parents. You know, my dad was in the war, second world the end of the second world war, and, and, and all that sort of prejudice that goes along with that. And it just, you know, you kind of inherit some of it. And but you have to learn it. We're in different times. And my kids just do not tolerate that stuff. They say, listen, that what you just said was not cool, you know, and I have to be, have to be careful. And it's, a, you have to reprocess. And, you know, as you get older, some stuff just isn't funny anymore. <laughs> yeah, exactly. you I, yeah mm-hmm. I mean, I, what we
1: used to laugh at, I sort of question now. Like yeah. things that I used to think, oh, it's just stereotyp- stereotypical you know, humor. It's a stereotype. Yeah. But those stereotypes can hurt people. And I yeah. never really thought about it. Yeah. And I always related back to me being Italian. Like I love a good Italian joke as good as anybody. You know? <laughs> You know, but in fact, I, I tell probably more than anybody else, and I have native friends who tell great native jokes, et cetera, yeah. et cetera, et cetera, or mm-hmm. aboriginal and and but now it's to the point of where there's been so much hurt and so much bigotry that's happened in in, in that area that I think people are becoming uh, much more I'm not going to say um sensitive but more acutely aware, yeah,
2: you know. Yeah, I agree. Um, and it, yeah and it's the pendulum you know it swings we become overly sensitive to whatever and then it goes back you know it, it's just what yeah. i have witnessed in my whatever years that, it that, will that,
1: settle that. it will settle in the middle eventually Yeah, it yeah, just takes yeah.
2: time yeah absolutely
1: so and, and every time there's a new generation those things kind of change as well yeah. but i was gonna i was gonna ask you you touched on a couple of things but first of all uh, how did you meet your wife or your partner i i are, are are you married or are you just living yeah.
2: No, we uh, I say partner. But the, I say wife is another term that uh, nobody's has a problem with it. I just tend to default to that now. It's more it's like when you call a, a woman you don't say mrs or miss. You say ms, you know, it's right in between so in case they're married or not, you don't want to offend anybody. So, I think it's something I default to I say partner to say that. I think it is it, it is truly what that is. It's your partner, you know. Oh, of course. Yeah. W- wife, I always default. The wife is something to do with the tradition of you know the the whole process of going and standing in front of the altar and declaring your vows, and that's something we did in, officially, and we did that in Las Vegas, uh, twenty five years ago, May first. I have to say, ah, congratulations! So, thank you, and uh, it's a, it's one of the hardest things I ever had to do. But I think <laughs> the, 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 it's like life, you know, you ha- you battle with things, you, not battle, you, you you have you know. Uh, Wall. Sometimes you have to build around, you know, and just it. But it's it's you know it's just all part of getting older, and you learn how to manage things hopefully better. You know, that's all you look for. So yeah, we started. I'll tell you the story. We yes. actually physically met. Uh, we were touring down here, and we had this band from Philadelphia opening up first called the Hooters. Oh, I remember that.
1: Yeah, I yeah. remember. Actually, I was at one of the shows in at nineteen eighty seven. Okay, so the Hooters backed you up at the Forum. I was there yeah. that night. You I, met, I, you, I met you once again backstage in L.A. Right.
2: So they were part of it. And she was part of their entourage. Oh. So push pushed forward a couple of years. And we were looking for somebody in 1991 when we started our tour for Wake Up the Neighbors. And Doug Grover, God rest his soul, uh, had new, known Paula, uh, my wife, before. And asked her if she wanted to be part of it. But uh, she's, she said, I don't know about those guys. <laughs> She said the sing- the singer's a challenge and the guitar player thinks everybody's in love with him. <laughs> really? Oh, something happened, and I, I don't know what it was. She was really nice, and we used to say hi to each other, but I think the guy we had at the time said, oh, he thinks that you're in love with him. I don't know why she said that. I never said that to her, but that's what she took from it. Oh. I think somebody's saying this. So, so somebody's somebody's supposition, became... somebody's supposition became this. So she's like, look, well, yeah. that guy's an asshole. <laughs>
1: yeah, I was just I said, so that. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, that's funny. Well, so we got over that, and we started hanging out in the uh, – in the early nineties, uh, quietly because she worked for us doing water. I didn't want to create any kind of uneasy feelings between the, the entourage, the band and everything And I just wanted them to feel that she was just who she was, not a partner of somebody. I think that would have put a psychological disadvantage for everyone. So we didn't tell anybody a couple of years later that we were seeing each other. So. Anyway, that's kind of where that manifested. And then she moved up to Vancouver and uh, and from Philly, where she lived. And then I think around the late 90s, we she got her landed status. And we said, you know what, we should just be married because we were together enough at that time. So we did that. Not really planning on having a family. We kind of actually agreed that we probably weren't going to. I was going to get older, so... And uh, anyway, we, we met some really great families where we lived on the North Shore, and I said, "Well, I wouldn't mind being a father if I could had kids like that," you know. <laughs> and they were great kids, and we respected the families a lot. So we decided to try. And that well, was... you've done a great job
1: because I met your kids. Remember, just before yeah. the pandemic, I uh, yeah. backstage in Victoria. Thank you. And mm-hmm. man, they're fantastic. You had a really solid family.
2: Yeah, thank you. We've uh, we've been blessed. First of all, they uh, they. Were great since day one they weren't like any issues or whatever we just he kind of just helped steer them a little you know and they are who they are and uh we had a pretty open liberal uh household so uh, no agenda or anything so we just let them be who they were develop who they were i guess the, the marked thing is that neither of them want to participate in music which was kind of always around but they said well we love the and they love music my son loves all kinds of my daughter's crazy for music goes to concerts all the time but they just don't want to be performing and that's totally fine yeah. um, sports was the other one you know they they kind of dabbled a bit in my soccer when they got it they hated it my son played baseball up into his freshman year of high school and then it kind of the coven hit and whacked and he realized that he was probably not going to be able to compete at the level that they require around here i mean there was a kid out of the high school Five years ago he's drafted number one overall the philadelphia phillies that's the kind of competition that exists wow. this is like a baseball factory and football for that matter but uh heavily uh focused on athletics here yeah. and and california you get to kind of work on your thing all year round because of the yeah. weather so yeah, they, they, I, I get it to a point it's a really big deal here so but they they don't really do any kind of real competitive sports and at which you know, I still play hockey for gosh sakes, you know. And uh, Well, you I, always I, a good hockey player. I remember. No, am not very good. Oh, I, well, I remember watching you really with
1: with the, uh, the the musicians versus the Sea Fox thing. Oh, yeah. You 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 looked always you looked great on the ice. Like you you actually looked like a hockey player out there.
2: Well, maybe about forty miles per hour slower. But I, the guy I used to think was great was Mike Sicoli. He was a really good player. So yeah, 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 yeah. I
1: just I just work with him on the weekend. okay how's he doing really really well you know he's still god i think he's a scratch golfer now god oh lord oh he's he's an actor he's a singer he's a he's a hockey player the man who does it all i I always say that mike Sakoli is a great bunch of guys
2: You know what, he's always been great to me, I I just, you know, he's just been really cool to me, and uh, he was funny as hell, and you know, I just, uh, he was great. All of you guys, you, Jeff, him. Now, the only guy that was missing from the band, Shama, was the drummer, and I was wondering uh, what happened with him. Oh, Brian, well, Brian,
1: we're talking about Shama right now, for anybody chiming in, it's a band that I was in when Keith was playing the circuit up in Vancouver, we were playing the circuit too, that's where we became friends, but anyway, so uh, Brian Armstrong, when Shama split up, Brian... Armstrong uh within about a year and a half became a life insurance salesman. And boy, did he ever become a life insurance salesman. I mean, I mean, he I mean, his house isn't a house, it's an estate. <laughs> you know, oh, he's, he's got the tennis courts, he's got the pool, he's got the putting green, he, like you know, the whole thing. I mean, he's done extremely well. Sadly. He lost his wife two years ago. Um right. now there's there's another there's another thing. Neither neither one of them, incredibly healthy lifestyle, everything they watched everything they put in their mouths, everything, no smoking, drugs, forget it, you know, mm-hmm. booze very, 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 very slightly. Mm-hmm. Uh and uh all of a sudden she was having backaches and they thought it might be osteoporosis and it was going on for quite some time and she went in and got a checkup and she was stage four lung cancer. Oh, sorry. And she was gone within two and a half months, it was that fast. Anyway, that, that's that's a sad story. But I was um, I was going to say, you no, know, I I got to spin back here a bit. When um when you remember, do you remember when my band cease and desist we played a wedding up at the Vancouver Club, uh in in Vancouver and uh we had some somehow you had got in touch with us asking if you could sit in with us yeah and and you played with us that night now. Paula was there. Was that was that very early in your relationship? Because I'm trying to... Uh,
2: yeah, reasonably so, I think, yeah. She, she'd she been living with me, and the person that was getting married was the sister of a very good friend of ours. So um, I think that's where that came from. Well,
1: you, sure pr- you sure proved your ear that night. Holy smokes, it's like any song we, we sh- threw at you, you were playing the solo to. Like crazy little thing called love. So that's not, that's not an easy solo to follow. It's going through, it goes through key changes and stuff and you play it like a
2: wizard. It was unbelievable. Well, I did have, I think I did try to do that in Bowser Moon. So, um, there. yeah, but still that was a, quite a few years before. Yeah. Well, I, I don't know. Sometimes I, I was just telling this, I think to Pat Stewart, our drummer now, because right. um he heard here Mickey Curry has declined to tour and he's rest, stay at home and that's his choice. And I miss him, but, um, he were talking about, I said, you know, Pat, in the old days, if I knew I was going out on a, on a trip with Brian, I knew I could get a hold of Mick or, or Mark France or something. And I'd say, what are you guys playing this weekend? Oh, we're playing out at Gators. I said, oh, okay. You want to come sit in? Yeah, yeah. And i come by and you guys were so gracious and allowed me to sit in, you know, mistakes and all, or playing songs I'd never played before, you know. Um, Bye-bye, Miss American Pie. Things like that that you guys were just blowing uh, routinely. And I would come in and just try to not get in your way. But the point is, I could come out there and play an hour or so every night and get my hands back just so I could hit the ground running when I hit the tour. And it really was such a great thing. And I I can't thank you enough for allowing me to do that. Oh,
1: that's really kind of you. That's very sweet. I mean, the honor was totally ours, of course. We were absolutely thrilled. But you know, it's interesting you say that because of course your whole point of this is to get back in shape for your touring. And I remember during the pandemic, and of course I was, you know, I'm in my little studio here, and I was I was writing and recording and all that stuff throughout the pandemic. Um, but of course, when you're when you're recording and you're playing a bass part or you're playing a keyboard part or a guitar part or something, it's only for a matter of you know, generally, you know, you will play through the song, but it's, you know, three minutes, five minutes, maybe if it's an epic, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, anyway, so it, when the pandemic started opening up and I realized that Michael Saccoli and I had a bunch of uh, Simon and Garfunkel shows in the theaters that we do now. Right. And I was going, well, man, I don't know if I can sing. You know, I haven't sang for like two years, you know, right. which is, I've never done that in my life. I've been singing my whole life. I never had a week off. Mm-hmm. And so I'm going, well, so, I went and I got a gig. Somebody got me a gig downtown in Victoria at this little pub, and what it was, my voice actually was okay. I slipped a few notes, you know, just from being out of shape. But my hands, oh my God, my hands! <laughs> oh, the first thing I did was I took my acoustic guitar and put extra light strings on it. Yeah. Oh God, it hurt like hell. I mean, yeah. and I'm still like, I'm still struggling with like thumb pains that I've never had in my life. You
2: know, yeah. it's weird. No, I agree, and it's if you don't uh, if you don't play a lot and you go to try and hit it like a an energy show, like I could say, like we've been doing, you really got to It really you notice it, you know, not just your fingertips, but your muscles and everything. You start to run out of steam for things, you know. Just then, I guess that's what scared me about it was when I used to do that in the '80s, and I knew that that would happen. So I wanted to take care of that, hopefully, before I went on. The tour leg or whatever it was coming in. The other thing, if I couldn't see you guys, I would set up my stereo, or whatever, in the basement of the house, and I will play along to records. Like three or four records, I kind of knew I you know, could play along to, and it would be like two or three hours of playing. Mm-hmm. And you're making mistakes, or whatever. You're just kind of playing to a record, but you could play it front to back, all the songs. You knew all the changes, and you just play along. And then if, within the three or four days, you felt like you had something going, and you could go and not feel uncomfortable when you were back. So.
1: Well, Jeff, Jeff Neal, you mentioned earlier from Shama once again. Yeah, yep. Now he's with Streetheart, but he, he's the king of discipline. Even now, like be, a day before they leave on a tour, or if they're doing even just two or three dates, whatever, he's in. He's got a mirror set up, and he does his complete their, their complete show from beginning to end twice in front of a mirror. Wow, <laughs> He's just he's so disciplined; it's unbelievable. He's always been that way, though.
2: Well, that' lucky for him that he can look in the mirror and say, I'm looking pretty good. I, I look in the mirror and I go, I don't want to look at that guy. Forget it. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> I'd rather suffer. I'll I, suffer
1: I, when I get there. <laughs> I, I, I think
2: you doing all right, buddy. Um, I, hope, I hope he's doing
1: well. I haven't talked to him for long. Yeah, he lives in Winnipeg now. Oh, are you kidding? And yeah. as a matter of fact, I mean, I, I don't know if I should say this, but uh, he's going to get married. Wow, congratulations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they're getting him and his uh, girlfriend, Renata. Uh yeah, so he moved there and he uh and they moved in together and now uh, he's actually getting married. So yeah, he's really happy. It was a really hard move for him to move out of Vancouver, but it, it just became increasingly, I think, uh, I mean, I shouldn't speak for him, but I think it was becoming increasingly, increasingly obvious that Vancouver offered less and less to him, and. Right and it was probably better for him to move to Winnipeg, which is basically where street art is based out of. And In it case. just made more sense, you know.
2: Right. And so. Please give him my regards if you do
1: speak to him. Oh, I will. I'll be talking to him tomorrow, so I certainly will. Okay. But, um, what was I going to say? Uh, yeah, so <laughs> you were talking about Michael Sicoli, uh being a funny guy. Uh, you know, I, I've, I've been recently... Uh, uh, Casey Boyle from your band, Bowser Moon... um he's he's been we've been in touch quite a while and i remember his his whole thing back like when you were in bowser moon his because he's such a funny guy he's incredibly witty and just like off the wall funny and his whole thing was to try to get you on stage where you couldn't play he was always trying to make you laugh so hard that you couldn't even play the guitar that was his goal every night
2: he's he succeeded in every way fashionable. The other person in my life who's neck to neck with him is Jan Arden, who I've oh, with. blessed oh to gosh, in the last 10, 15 years. And uh, I- I'm telling you, it was like, oh my gosh, it's Casey wearing a wig. You know, I mean, she was absolutely, his- and is absolutely hysterical. Uh, in the same capacity she mimics people she has a million jokes i mean i first started working with her in like 2009 or 10 and She said, "You laugh at everything I do." I said, "You are so freaking funny." I mean, I you you and she called she called me "Giggles McSquiggles" after a while (laughs) because I just laughed at everything. And everybody else in the band had heard the jokes a billion times; they didn't laugh, didn't respond. But I'm just dying in the corner because I love that kind of stuff. And anyway, she was absolutely as funny as as Casey, if not more. So I remember there was a
1: there was a late uh, a late night. radio show that i used to listen to years ago back when i had a house gig at the roxy and i listened to it coming home from work and that night it was just after Shannon had uh released the album that had insensitive on it which okay. is what a, what a song oh my god but anyway yes. so and she was on the radio talking to this interviewer late night and i was going oh my god this girl is absolutely freaking hilarious i mean and then i saw her on tv and she's doing a whole routine where she's imitating her mother and it was like, and it was just dead on you know, that sort of prairie Midwestern accent that you know people have, and oh, just incredible! She's really, really funny, and very talented. My God!
2: And uh, I, she busted me down on stage a few nights that, we <laughs> and I did like three records and three tours with her. Thank you to Bob Rock, it was kind enough to involve me and all that as far as the recordings and. We had a great time and. Um, so I had three tours, and everyone had these moments way off. Just ridiculous. Not only is she, I mean, you hear her sing her heartfelt songs, and they're so deep and, and meaningful. And and then she turns around and tells you the, the crassiest joke you've ever heard in your life. And I just think that that is a person with massive, massive ability, you know, and sensitivity, and she's really something, you know, a, a true Canadian legend, without a
1: doubt. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Uh, no, I, I, speaking about working on albums, I, I just uh, saw that uh, Paul Rogers has a new solo album out and you played guitar on it.
2: I did a bit, yeah. I Again, yeah. Bob invited me last September and I, and I came from the end of a trip in Ontario, Brian, and went straight to Vancouver and sat in the studio and we cranked out a bunch of bits for I don't know, maybe half a dozen songs, I think. And it was sounding great. I mean, just the whole thing. As you know, we're all fans and we sang those songs uh, in the clubs. Mm -hmm. And to hear the voice coming back to the speakers and he's sitting right next to you and... It's like, okay, dig in because you're so distracted by the sound of his voice and everything and the beautiful golden pipes. You know, it, it was really fun and we had a great time. It was just a couple of days of throwing some licks down things and it was good. But I think Ray Roper did, and some people in Pentictor did a lot of the background. So.
1: Yeah, well, Ray Roper did a lot of the uh, uh, tracking at his his studio in Summerland, I think it is. Mm -hmm. Ray Roper got involved, and I believe Ray is now going to be his touring guitarist, which is a great, great thing for Ray. Because Ray is one of those, you know, uh, song heroes. He's always been a great guitar player, great producer, great engineer,
2: great singer. You know, yeah, everything. He's got the full deal, man. He's just, why? What, why wouldn't you? He's so great, you know?
1: Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I'm, I'm really happy because that's, that's a gig he deserves, you know? He's been sort of struggling for a long time and he doesn't deserve to. And, of mm-hmm. course, uh, Rick Fedek is his drummer and Rick Fedick is like Canada's John Bonham. I mean, yeah. he's unbelievably good. And and uh, Todd Ronning, Ronning on bass, who's been with Paul for quite some time. He that's, Cliff's,
2: that's Cliff's son, right? That's Cliff's brother. Brother, okay.
1: Yeah, yeah. And um, and uh, he's uh, another hockey reference. (laughs) Anyway, so uh, (laughs) uh, yeah, no, and uh, Cliff even plays, or Cliff Todd even plays with uh, with uh, bad company. So yeah, so he's been he's been alongside Paul. As a matter of fact, I think the 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 single that just came out was written, I think it was written by Spud, well Rick Fedek. And, wow. and uh, Todd, and then, and then Paul came in and finished it up with them. So it's, they're, they're pretty proud of it, you know? So, so has Bad Company reunited for any reasons in the last 10, 15, 20 years? I, 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 they, they've been touring with doing these shows with, with Bad Company, but, um, I, I, and I know that Todd is playing bass with Bad Company now, but, but I don't, I don't know how much they actually do, you know, yeah. I know that they I, I it's hard to say. Uh, um, back a few years, uh, I'm going to say probably 2011. We when we had uh, Backman and Turner together, not just Randy Backman, but with mm-hmm. Fred came back, and we called it Backman and Turner because we couldn't use the BTO thing because that was a you know litigation (laughs) so uh but anyway but we toured with paul rogers quite a few dates and it'd be like it'd be like one of those flip a coin who's gonna open tonight and who's gonna close we didn't neither band cared you know but it was fun and it was great and what was magical about his voice was every night he would sing the song slightly different and every night it was just as magical as the original you know he's just got the phrasing of like the guy's just unbelievable it just pops out of him you know
2: I know. I asked him in in the studio. Bob ducked out, and he's just him and I. And I said, "So, can I ask you some questions?" <laughs> yeah, of course. You know. <laughs> I said, "Who did you? Who did? How did you learn? Who who did you listen to to get? You do do what you do?" And he said, "Oh gosh, Motown." Damn, you. Cook. This I was right out. Of, you know, out of the box. You no. Know. Those are the singers she'd listen to. So. And I I get it, but I just yeah. want to hear him say it, you know. And they started telling me stories about when he was a kid growing up in Middlesbrough, I think he's from, and up north. And uh, he's singing. We were little kids. We'd go watch these guys. We went to this club. We couldn't get in, but we watched these limos pull up. And one guy gets out. And, it's Noel Redding next limo pulls up it's mitch mitchell and then jimmy hendrix and they just walked in the club and played and went that was it but he did these amazing stories about growing up and he's right in the middle of all of that you know late 60s yeah. thing that was going on in england so
1: yeah quite a magical time there boy yeah. holy smokes well vancouver had that period of time in the late 80s <laughs> where no, every, even- every major band was coming up to vancouver to record I know you're you're from the prairies originally,
2: right? Or no, no, Coupin, say Marie, sorry. Yeah. Uh, uh, but in the late 67, 68, I was thirteen, fourteen, you know, impressionable young teenager, and the whole you know, West Coast uh, you know, the almost like the San Francisco thing was going on in Vancouver, the Easter Beans in Stanley Park going down there on it was just that whole thing was right right there. The whole social and cultural sort of movement moving forward and I don't know. I mean, I feel blessed to be a part of that. I consider it a golden era for thought, not just music, you know, so uh, I'm feeling like, you know, pretty lucky to be growing up in that time period. The Beatles, of course, the the guys from outer space that changed the world, even the four guys. The, the, uh, uh...
1: It's interesting because I learned all of that stuff by proxy. After I moved to Vancouver, I learned a lot of stuff. You know, working with Rock and Norton and John Hall and all that stuff. So I learned. I learned about the Seeds of Time, and I heard those old records. Of course, they didn't mean as much to me because I was hearing them way like decades later. You know, at the time, it was magical to have a hometown band have songs on the radio. Um, but, and that stuff never seemed to cross the mountains, you know, or even the prairies. Like there'd be bands that were huge out of Toronto and Southern Ontario and Sault Ste. Marie played all over the radio as big as anybody, but yet they probably didn't get any further than Winnipeg, you
2: know? So give me an example what bands were huge.
1: Um, well, there's bands called Pepper Tree, a band called Major Hoople's Boarding House. Um, there was a band called Wednesday, which are essentially a cover band, but they did release uh, the odd single and stuff that did really well on the radio, um, Let's see, James Leroy, but James Leroy did okay. He had a song called "A Touch of Magic" that I think it went right across Canada. Just a touch of magic in her eyes. I don't know if you remember that one, but uh, but it sounds '70s to me. <laughs> yeah, it certainly is. Yeah, he, he his songs. He was a great songwriter, but his songs always had the same little trick in them, you know. But but yeah. he became he became somewhat of a mentor to me, and and uh, actually he was. Uh, he was thrilled when me and Michael, because what happened was he mo- he was from Ottawa. We moved to Sault Ste. Marie. Uh, a, a rumor has it he met a girl in Sault Ste. Marie and re- decided to retire from music for the time being and took over the uh, management of a place called the Sawmill Lounge in the Water Tower Inn in, right. in, in, in Sault Ste. Marie and then would um, do the nighttime show on CKCY radio at right. a time. So he'd get me and Mike down there and we'd, and we'd sit with him all night and he'd tell us road stories you know and of course and when jeff came back uh jeff had come back to ask michael and i to join this new band because him and brian were already out on the road and so he was thrilled that we were going out and playing he said, all right you're gonna you're gonna place you're gonna play a place called the sarah knights and he's telling us all about it <laughs> it was it was just great and uh sadly he he passed away but um but uh, as a matter of fact it was interesting because Shama got what our very first leg up uh, where we backed up Trooper when Trooper were at their zenith. They had just released the uh, their greatest hits album, mm-hmm. and um, we were. It was the very, very first day of that tour, and I was backstage and everybody was tossing a frisbee around while the crew was setting up in this arena. And so, and Ray McGuire walked in. He says, "Do you know James Leeway?" I said yeah. said, "Yeah." He said, "He just died." I went, "What?" No. The very first day, and that's that's one thing I would have loved to tell him. Hey, man, I'm playing the big stage. You know, <laughs> uh, you know it's it's so it's kind of weird in a way. You know, yeah. that it happened. So that. When did you
2: move out of Sioux to come to the Prairies? How old are you?
1: Uh, well? <laughs> okay, whose interview is this? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say so. But no, what happened was uh, Jeff, uh Brian Armstrong had left first because he had graduated grade twelve. He went on the road. Uh, he came back a few months later and got Jeff, who, was, who had graduated, and uh, Jeff joined that band with Brian. Uh, Jeff came back about nine months later, I'm going to say, uh, during spring break, maybe six months later, and grabbed Michael and I and brought us to a place called Suriano's Restaurant in Sault Ste. Marie, which is where the musicians all gathered. And he says, look, he says, I am not. I, I, I think I want to make a super band, and you guys have got to be part of it. So he's, you know, and Michael and I played together. We did some bar work and stuff in Sault Ste. Marie, but I'd never played with Jeff. Well, maybe one night, uh, just a casual. I'd never played with Brian. So it was a real crapshoot. And so the whole thing was um, so that was in March or April. And so I got a job in a music store and saved up all my money so I could pay for my plane ticket to Vancouver and have good gear. So I shipped up all my gear just before Christmas. And uh landed in Vancouver on January 2nd of 1976. Huh. Yeah, my dad let me quit high school.
2: That's amazing. Um, I don't I
1: don't even have my grade 10.
2: That's like Brian. He said um he quit uh he was going to Sutherland or one of the high schools in the North Shore, Argyle. And uh he went and said, I'm, I'm out of here. I want to go be a musician. He told his mom that he was 16 or 15, something like that. He joined a band called The Shock, Shocks. And his mother and he got a call from the principal saying, "You, uh, your son's quitting high school. He's not even grade 11 yet. And he said, no, he wants to do it, and I support him. And he, the principal apparently turned to his mom and said, you're a bad mother. Oh, wow. <laughs> but, you know, in hindsight, you know, we can be judicious, but it's <laughs> – just interesting. He has a similar story. That he said, you know what? This isn't going to work for me right now. So I'm going to try this, and if it doesn't work, then I guess I can always go and sell insurance or whatever. It's going to make your world okay again, you know?
1: Yeah. Well, so, my my dad saw my grades were doing nothing. The only the only classes I went to were music classes, and the rest of the classes I'd I'd skip out and go down to the music store and jam. You know? yeah. like, I mean, all the musicians coming through town would stop at the music store, and I'd learn things from them. You know?
2: Don't you feel that somehow due to the era and that our time in our lives as young men or women, uh, that we were kind of dragged into it in some capacity, kind of like the Pinocchio story where they all go to that <laughs> amusement thing at the end. And it, it, just interesting, you think you stick with it if you just hang in there and, and hopefully sometime a number will call, be called and you'll get a, an opportunity to do something to move forward. And I, I just felt that in hindsight, I look back and everything, Jesus. First of all, I was really fortunate to have worked with such great people the entire time. Like right through, from the end of high school, I I was in, uh, with my friends in, in senior year of high school. One of them went went on to become, you know, his own entity, Daryl Cromie, formed Strange Advance. And this is the guy we put this little basement band together with in grade 12 and stuff. And from that, you know, I get recruited into Hammy Page uh, by a church gig that we did. And, you know, those guys were really, if, you know, in the guys in Hamming Page, they were serious and they were, wanted to be good and they worked at, at writing songs and everything, which I thought was great. They just weren't dicking around. So they all had a real positive professional approach to it and that, those, that was really a, an impact to me as a young guy. I didn't know what I was doing. I was 18, 19 years old, I'm in clubs and, you know, whatever, and easily to be distracted, I guess. but. So that situation, going for a couple of years, you see the dedication from the people around you, a little bit older than you, and then going into Zingo, which, you know, which was another thing, which I actually got to have a bigger voice in about how kind of material we could pick. And actually, uh, I think it was 1976, we went to Toronto to play the clubs out there, did a whole summer, and we saw like... uh, uh, Max Webster and that song Old War had just come out and they were all dressed in white and they came out this, holy crap. Okay, that's what we should be looking at as as players. And it, that, it wouldn't be great to have that kind of power. And that's that changed the game for us that summer. We started to write things together and uh, we hadn't really done that up to that point. So that was another level. And thankfully the people around me, those guys, the core of them, they were willing to try things, you know, we were trying jazz fusion things, you know, listen, let's try this because no one else is doing it and it'd be fun, you know, and we can do it, you know, kind of encouraging. And so I, I guess the point is that all my situations in those formative years were mostly positive. And I was lucky to work with people that cared, you know, so I'm grateful for that. Yeah, well, I I, I was...
1: I missed the Hanley Page stage of your career because that was before I moved out to Vancouver, or basically because I moved out to Vancouver in January, but we never played Vancouver till '78. Now, now in '78, we by that time we played the Body Shop, and they asked us to do, to do New Year's with you guys and Zingle. We shared a New Year's stage that year. Remember. Yeah, which is really cool, and that's where I, that's where I really first met you because generally you don't really get to meet other musicians because you're usually playing yourself, you know. Um, and I so there's two bands that we met. One was Bowser Moon, and mm-hmm. uh, and the other one was Zingo, mm-hmm. and um, and then I, yeah, I remember I remember seeing. I'm pretty sure I saw you play with Zingo one night, and you guys did Baker Street. Oh gosh, yeah, yeah, and it was great. And instead of instead of the the syndrome doing that, you were doing it like with a slide on your guitar or something. But it was really it was really effective, and it worked really well.
2: <laughs> yeah, I think we added a sax player at that point. That was the yep. last year, I think. Yeah, it was the keyboard player's brother, but which uh, was trying because we heard all this amazing seventies pop music that we were kind of, you know, employed to do to perform and just keep gigs at the clubs. And we thought, well, there's so much sax going on in the pop world. Right. That was a Skinner Brothers, right? He was,
1: yeah. Yeah. I was going to say, oh, I know what I was going to say. The the Skinner, talk about Dave Skinner, has Mm -hmm. been posting things, recordings of Zingo. And Mm -hmm. here's a song that popped up with you singing lead vocals. Oh, yeah. Holy, you're a really good singer. The only thing (laughs) I ever saw you sing before was when you were in Bowser Moon. And I remember you were doing that. too much time on my hands i remember remember that that. song the the stick song but but it was an original song and i'm going wow like you were actually a really good singer like it's it's amazing that you never followed that route
2: yeah i i don't i think i'm just lazy (laughs) (laughs) and i've always worked with pretty good singers. well as soon as i got with brian i was out case closed but he's always been great supportive of me and encouraged me to try and I think I just always defaulted to the guitar. I felt most comfortable that, and I mean, I still sing stuff at sound checks all the time. Nobody else knows the song, so if it's within my range, I think that's where I struggle. I'm trying to remember the lyrics, or like, and then you just foul up. But I think that's the key. If you can remember the words, you'll you'll fall into the memory, uh, the melody. Sorry. Uh,
1: yeah, I'm I'm really lucky with remembering lyrics. Actually, Michael Sokoli and I both have that gift. We can sort of. We we really we're quick at memorizing songs, and once we know know a song, we know it for life. You know, so yeah, we've, got, we've got quite an arsenal of songs together.
2: If anything, you mentioning that, I mean, thank you for saying that. And um, I wished I'd pursued it more in some capacity. I just think it broadens you. You know, singing and playing together is the ultimate to me. If you can play piano or guitar and sing, I mean, what more do you need? You can go to your end, entertaining yourself, which is yeah. what I do. I'll try to sing. Through changes remember as I can of any song and typically for Brian because he's such a hit big fan is Beatles stuff and if we can go through he'll just pick start playing chords to some you know early Beatles song and I say oh my gosh okay sound it out in your head and you just you know and they're so incredibly deep melodies that uh, for me and have such impact uh, that I think melody is the key uh in in any capacity it doesn't matter whether it's classical music jazz or anything if you can be clever and uh interesting with melody i i think that is a real key. and they were they were
1: certainly the kings of that you know lennon mccarty and harrison they were just incredible with that stuff
2: and i guess that's why i shy away from more of the shredding things today because i'd rather do something simple that people might remember you know and and in Brian's case, that was kind of required. You know, he he would write a lot of solo things that I would something I would just play on the record, or he would play, and they were they had way more meaning in context. So, well, look I, at the solo, Well, bring back the Beatles. Look at the solo of something. Yeah, like what
1: a what a work of art! It's a yeah. total thing. To, it's a totally brand new melody yeah. that you can you can actually hum it. And you never get tired of it. It's a beautiful yeah. solo, and
2: it sounds like he did it in one shot. That's what, the way he phrased and everything. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm guessing, but you know, that. Yeah. in those days they wouldn't cut it. So that's good enough. You know, just, <laughs> good enough for you, and amazing for everybody else in the world. Thank you very much.
1: Yeah. So it's, getting back to Brian, so I yeah. know that Brian was a big fan of yours before he asked you to join the band. <laughs> it's, it's weird because it's it's odd. Somewhere around the inception of his touring band, I was. I remember being at the Boop pub. And I think, yes, I think I was with Trauma by that time. So it was me and Mike and, and Tommy Stewart. And Remote Control was backing us up with Daryl Crom, who you That's mentioned, funny. and Jim Wesley on the drums. And Brian came in and, and pulled me aside. He said, what do you think of Jim Wesley as a drummer? I said, I love him. He said, yeah, because I, I just asked him to join my band. And he, I said, oh, that's cool. He says, yeah, Keith Scott's a guitar player. What, really? Oh, great. You know, it was like, it was very, very beginning. It might have been,
2: you weren't in the very first touring band, were you? Well, that was the, the Daryl and the, were they, what did you call them? Remote Control. Uh, remote Control. So it was then, it was Ed Delinsky and Daryl and I think Paul Iverson. And Paul Iverson, yeah. And they would go do a couple sets of things and then Brian would come and do his hour. And which I actually got to see part of. So I live in 1980, and I was living in North Van, and I up at the top of Lonsdale with my friend Glenn, and I went down to the Whispers, which was a 15-minute walk from where I lived, and there was uh, Brian Adams playing that night. Well, okay, and I I knew him, but I didn't know him really well, as obviously prior to him contacting me about working, and and he was just by himself, and he was playing one of those big Yamaha CPU threes, where you call them. Yeah, and singing songs, uh, no one makes it right. All this stuff, and ah, he's like kind of like Elton or something, which I thought was interesting. That's how he was kind of delivering it, and uh, I thought, and he. I think he played uh, one or two songs at the end or something, but that was my first introduction to him, seeing him actually as Brian. So,
1: and so, how did it come about you you joining his band? Because I mean, you've been his right hand man for, like since
2: since that day, basically, right? Um, well, again, like reitering what you just said about Jim, he. Uh, I think I was I was going into a, a liquor store I think in West Van, I was living out that way then. I, I was with Bowser Moon then, so I went in. I who comes walking out? It's Brian. I said, "Oh man, how you doing?" And uh, we well, stayed in touch. I uh, go back uh, a couple of years. I had met him in Toronto via a mutual friend, and he was seventeen. I was in well, Sweeney Todd? Was we in Sweeney Todd, right. and I said, "How's it going?" He goes, "Oh, it's okay. You know, I, it's just what it Is it's, I'm actually out here shopping my demos. Jim and I, uh, Jim Allen and I, write all these songs. We're trying to get it signed. You know, so okay. So it was kind of a vehicle for that, and then he and. You know, we had lunch, and I, I said goodbye, and then. But he always stayed in touch with me, and called me at like six months. Says, "Hey, man, I'm doing a session at Pinewood. Uh, come down, and uh, we'll go for pizza." Like he was just really, like I guess, networking in a way before that word existed, as far as I know. So, anyway, he would stay in touch, and then I was playing with the moon down in the uh, place on Marine Drive uh, for Fraser Arms. Oh, Fraser Arms, yeah. What was the room downstairs there? R- 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 reservation cabaret or something is that what they called it uh the fr- frams no no Free- freezer arms yeah down downstairs yeah frams it was called frams, frams. yeah frams. okay uh and he showed up with a little bit of a posse and he said okay uh i know i haven't talked to you in a while but i made this record in new york with these great musicians bought clear mountain blah 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 i need to put a band together would you be interested in trying something and i said well oh, okay he goes I'll, I'll shoot a record over to you and i said okay so we stayed in touch and i listened to the record and then Okay, I guess I could probably try this, um, and I, I didn't really consider because I knew I was pretty entrenched with Casey in that, and we had a great relationship, and we had a lot of fun together playing the clubs. But I think we both had a sense that it was only going to go so far unless one of us picked up the torch and started putting songs out together. If you don't do that, you're you're going to have to reconfigure. So, um, and I had a talk with Casey. I said, "Listen, this has happened," and he goes. He said, I'm so glad you talked to me because I'm getting hammered by the agency to be an agent because they think I could do great and I could make way more money. And he says, I'm kind of thinking maybe my singing thing is kind of coming to an end and all that. So I think it was coincidental. We both agreed. And I said, He said, Well, just you know, give it a try. And you know, we've always got the moon. We can always do it anytime you want. So we started looking for people. And it was Brian and I. We auditioned bass players, uh, uh, drummers, and finally Jim became part of it. Uh, a guy, uh, Dave, oh, Dave, Reimer, was, Dave Reimer, was, Reimer played bass for a bit, yeah. The first guy, uh, and John Hanna came over from Moon. Right. So we had a core of people that we go to. Jody, this uh, our salmon, of course, was with Moon. He's still here with me, well, I heard ago. that Jody retired. He just did, but uh, our guy, we Brian hired a guy from Germany who's uh, uh, tied into this really big band called Totenhosen, which is like this heavy band. So. um, he had to go do some commitments to that. This so Jody came back for this last leg, which was oh, great. Cool. We go back a long way, and yeah, you know, I couldn't stand not having him around. So yeah, so he's he's been filling in anyway. So this core of people came from Bowser Moon and other places, and that's kind of where it started. We rehearsed that summer of '81 and uh put a little club show together, did it in September, did some dropped in on some people, uh, played at Whispers, all blah, blah blah, gators. And then we started our first ticketed show was at the Commodore October 2nd, 1981. And we did every club from Vancouver on east into uh Toronto area. And uh yeah, it was kind of a humble beginnings. So you walk into a club in Thunder Bay and there's eight people, and it's like kiss chance down the lonely night, nobody knows what you're doing. But you know, I have to hand it to Brian because he was on the phone, i room with him. And he was on the phone every day in the next city talking to the program directors and the station managers saying, how come you're not playing my record, man? It's, gonna, it's moving up. As I, you know, he was really a great salesperson for his own work. And he never stopped. He never gave up. I, I, heard,
1: a, I up. heard a story about Brian. I, maybe you can confirm this or not. Um, that he, when he was in Sweeney Todd, he networked so well that he would meet all any record person, any any record store person, yeah. any record executive person, any AR guy, whatever. And he'd talk to them and find out things like their kids, how old, wife, mm-hmm. all that stuff, and write it all down. Yeah. And and kept a, a diary of that. So when he was pushing his own records, he'd phone up, hey, how's it going? Hey, how's Jane doing? Oh great. And how's little Billy? He must mm-hmm. be about eight years old now, huh? <laughs> Like uh, uh, that wouldn't surprise me. That seems like something he would do, right?
2: Yeah, no, he's a memory like a steel trap. He remembers what I did in like 1983 backstage and like you know Dusseldorf. I don't know what shoes <laughs> I was wearing. I I can't remember. But you know, he's great. He's he's got a terrific memory that way. And uh, so, but that that's kind of the humble beginnings of it, and it just you know we just kept working at it and. Him and Jim, you know, right place, right time. Uh, I just saw Jim in New York. We played uh, there a few weeks back at the Mesker Garden, and he came, and he's kind of retired now. but uh, Yeah, no,
1: I know. I Last time I was with Jim, actually, was in London, in England. Michael and I went over and did our our Billy and Elton show. <laughs> we, we have lots of shows we do together. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. So we went, and it's funny because a friend of mine uh, who lives in England, he says, it's weird, you're playing here. He says, I just saw Elton play here himself last year. <laughs> <laughs> we we're playing. We we're playing a big corporate party, right? So it was quite <laughs> funny, and uh, but anyway, so G, G, we went out for dinner with Jim, and it was great. You know, I mean, I, I just love him. I, I talked to him a fair amount. We we, we exchange things all the time, and we're still talking about Beatles after all these years. Hey, Did you hear this? You hear this little lick on this record? Yeah, well, I think that's Bubba bug, you, know? <laughs> you know, I mean, we send stems of songs back and forth to each other all the time. He's just great. I know. And, uh, what doing. a craftsman, man! Jeez, yeah. that guy's talented.
2: And. Yeah, just absolutely astounding. Again, one of those people you're just so blessed to have, you know, part of your life, and not just musically, but personally, you know, in every way. He's always been such a supporter, and you know, I just really grateful for that. You know, lucky, just doors open. (laughs) Yeah, that's
1: it's it is, and 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 you know, you you talked about uh, being so grateful on playing some of these albums, but I, I remember, I think you came to see us one night in richmond or something and i think you had just done some sessions with carly simon i think okay yeah, yeah. and the people you've worked with i mean we like i mean you know uh tina turner who we just yeah. lost uh, like like you've, you've been around some really cool people in your life and played some really huge
2: like you're the
1: zenith the biggest of the big. <laughs>
2: You know? Oh, well, I, I think again it's the associations. Um, you know, with Brian and Bob Clamoun and you know, Bob Rock, of course, in the last twenty, thirty years has just been so great to me. And come on, come on, you gotta come and do this, you know, it's okay. And I'm I will never say no to that guy or any of them because not just because you feel like you owe, but it's the experience is always so positive and we have a great time, we catch up and you know, talk about things we like and don't like, or whatever. You know, and we have families, and it's just everything about it. it's your community, your real community, your life community. So, yeah. again, being part of all that stuff in the '80s, uh, Tina Turner. Like my wife worked for Tina Turner and Elton actually, uh, in the same capacity for a couple, quite a bit. So the news. And what did she, being, what she, did she do with them? His wardrobe. Yeah, so that's how we met. Um, but she worked for Tina in the same capacity, and she was tour managing the band for a little bit before it became a little bit too too much. She said, I think I'm done. That was like late 90s. So, And then uh, we got married, and then we had kids. So that that was wow. yeah, incredible. So. eh? And how old did you see your kids were again? Uh, my daughter's 21, and my son's 18. So. Okay. So, so
1: I would have met them when they were like probably 18 and, you know. Yeah, like, fourteen something like that. that you know, That'd be five years ago. So yeah, about sixteen. Well, it was probably. T- I'm thinking it was 2019. Yeah, so it was 2019. Been, yeah, four yeah. years ago. Yeah, yeah. Pretty sure. Yeah. Wow, that's incredible. So, but yeah, I, I mean, I for one thing, it's great to talk to you because we're old friends, and I've always had great rapport. You know, I, it's funny because people say, "You know, what Keith Scott," I said, "Yeah, I used to babysit my daughter." <laughs> 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 I mean there was a period of time we actually did i mean I, I mean you 'cause you were you were dating somebody who was friends with my wife, and
2: yeah yeah, I just remember uh you had kids much earlier than I did, so you obviously did the smart thing, because that's, I think, in hindsight, that's probably what you should do, do it earlier.
1: Well, you know, I, here's the flip side of that. It, it, there's a book called, like, I'm, no, I'm in no way religious, but I did read this book that I thought was interesting. It's a trilogy called Conversations with God. Mm-hmm. And in, the God character in book number three says, children were never meant to be raised by their parents. They were right. meant to be raised by the grandparents. The parents are still trying to figure it out. Right. And And, you know, really? I, I shouldn't have had kids well carolyn i adopted i mean i adopted uh well, carolyn came into my life when i was 18. she was already two um and and i so i adopted her by the time i was 20. yeah carmen, carmen was born when i was 20 years old and two months later carolyn's legal adoption came through so essentially i got two kids within two months mm-hmm. um because she carolyn started kindergarten as carolyn houston and after Christmas, she became Carolyn Della Vicenza. So okay. uh but yeah, but uh, it, I I there's so many things I would do different now, you know, in hindsight. You know, I mean everybody says that, but that's what I mean. A grandparent has a perspective of things, an older person has a perspective of things. You're not still struggling and, and freaking out about every little
2: bill and you know, sure. sure. And and I think here's here's a context for you. Uh, when my kids were young, they entered the public school down here in San Diego. <laughs> And I remember walking I thing I loved was walking my kids in and out of school. I just thought that was the greatest. And I, I never never happened to me. My mom kicked me out the door and said, Make go go to school, I'll kill you. You know, whatever. <laughs> and uh, I walked my kids in. I can see other parents who are like twenty, thirty years younger than me, he goes, Oh, isn't that sweet, their grandpa's Oh, jeez. <laughs> yeah, that's context for you, how not to do it too late, you know. So
1: well, I'm well, that's the same thing. I mean, on the other, on the flip side of that, I remember going to uh Safeway with Carolyn when she was about mm, I'm just gonna say she's about seventeen at the time. We went to Safeway and and the pe- the girl behind the counter thought we were a couple. <laughs> 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 and Carolyn thought that was the best thing on earth. She laughed her head off about that for the longest time. You
2: oh know? gosh. Anyway. That's it. It, we're we're lucky. I, I'm just
1: so lucky. The kids are great. We they really are. They're polite and sweet and up and upbeat and they're really really nice. And so is Paula. I mean, Paula was like so great to me because I, I, you know, uh, after the show was over, you and I were in touch. And after the show was over, I was going, okay, I'm not going to bother And I was walking out, and she came and grabbed me. I right. said, oh, she says Keith wants to say hi to you. So mm-hmm. th- that's why I went backstage. I was going to leave you alone because I figured, ah, he doesn't
2: need to talk to me. <laughs> no, I just say hi, and I wanted to yeah. meet you with your partner and all that. Um, now you're still in Victoria, right? I, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. No regrets here, boy. I'm so happy. Well, we're going to be up in September. If you're interested, if you're around, make sure if if you, if we are and you're around, I'd love to say hi and have a coffee if you want. Yeah, to
1: yeah, I'd like to have over. If you got time to come over to the house, you probably wouldn't. I'm I'm sure with Victoria, the way it's situated, you probably arrive and leave almost right away. So,
2: I uh, probably I think it's the first date on that leg, so I would come the day before. Oh, and- cool. So, if, if we'll yeah, see, okay, well, maybe that, that's what we could do. It'll
1: it'll still be nice, so you can come out, have a coffee on the back deck, and look over the lake. I got a beautiful little spot
2: here. Okay, beautiful,
1: well done. Yeah. Right. Anyway, so you're touring the states coming up. Uh, mm-hmm. You said you're go- you on the east side. You said you were saying no. It's
2: through Texas. And oh, and Texas, right? am up, sorry. And, and up yeah. to the middle of Minnesota and stuff, you know.
1: And then you're so, then are are you doing Western, Eastern Canada, and Western Canada, or just the odd jaunt up here?
2: So we hit the East. We started in Baltimore, New York, Boston, Buffalo, Syracuse, uh, went down through Florida, and then we'll go through Texas up through the Midwest. And then the last leg is like through here up to Portland, LA, Portland, Seattle, and then a couple of privates. That takes me to mid August. And then September is up your area, a couple of Private things. What did you say? The twenty second of September. Yeah, I haven't looked yet. I, I think it's earlier than that. Um, so that leg, the Western leg, is about ten days, and then uh, October is open right now. But they're wanted to do maybe more Joan dates inside Joan Jet in here, and then oh, cool. um, and then November is uh, Middle East and uh, South Africa, which we've been to several times in the last thirty years. And uh, and then before Christmas is Eastern Europe, so it winds up in Turkey and then I'll be home. How how often are
1: you able to enjoy the actual places you're playing? Uh, we, we
2: tend to, you know, we have over the years. And we've always made it a point of if we are tourists and we're there for the first time, we try to see what's important. So uh, we've done great things. Like Brian's pretty good about some like that. It was I have to remember this one thing. I've told this before. I think we were playing in Dubai in the Middle East, in the Emirates. And our last show was in Amman, Jordan, which I had never been to before. And I started looking and trying, holy crap, that's really close to that famous built into the rock place from oh, many years ago, 6,000 years ago, a place called Petra. Mm. And it's been featured in films and all it's, you know, everything, National Geographic. I thought oh, it would be great. So I started looking into it, and it was, it's like two, three hours' drive south of Amman. And I went to Brian, we're getting on the plane. I said, so what are you doing after this last show? He said, all oh, right, I got photography in London. I said, okay. I said, why, why? And I said, well, Petra is like south of Amman. I'm thinking, I talked to my wife and I said, I'd like to stay an extra day to see that, take a bus down, see it, and then come home the, and stay an extra, and come home the following day. And she said, no problem. And I said, I was wondering if maybe you'd do that. And he said, no, I, I can't. And he could see his wheels going. So I go back, sit in my seat, about 20 minutes, he comes back. Hey, i got to figure it out. We land. There's a helicopter picking us up. We're going straight to the Petra. It takes us 20 minutes. we go take some pictures, come back to the show, and we go home. He's like, I need to take care of everything. Well, I- like the royal family of Jordan picked us up in their military helicopter. But he, because he wanted to get it done, you know. And I thought that was really amazing. So I'm good for him.
1: But, you know, that's, uh, you you mentioned that about Brian. I mean, Brian, it's like, how many people can pick up photography and be, he he shot the queen, for God's sakes.
2: You
1: know, I I mean, so he became incredibly good at that as well.
2: Yeah, he just really wanted to do great, and he studied it hard, and uh, he's just a fan. He is passionate, and he's like, became friends with her Ritz's assistant, and learned all his tricks about lighting and uh, aperture, and just studied it, studied it, kept trying things and brought his own style into it. And, you know, he just loves it. So,
1: wow. What a so guy. Yeah. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation and I Thank can't you. believe it. It's been two freaking hours. Know, sorry, man. No, yeah, no, 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 I no, 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 no. I, are you kidding? We could go forever, but there's only so much room on my hard drive. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh. This is incredible. I can't, Oh man, this is uh, you for on one thing, TV. it's just great to touch base with you, but, um, it, it uh, We'll, we'll stay in touch we got each other's information so let's uh let's see if we can hit each other up somewhere around your date in victoria hopefully i'm not out with backman i might be out on a backman tour at that time but
2: uh we'll we'll see
1: well, thank it, you so much
2: great thank you for inviting me and I, I i don't get to sort of explain a lot of what my history is just not enough time you know i do podcasts once in a boom and they want to know real basic things you only got time to do so much anyway it's nice to see somebody that that i was you know part of the club thing and everything has a history with me of 40 50 years and we have so much in common and so much to share so i I appreciate you doing that and it's important to get it out and let people know before it goes away i
1: think well that's the thing it becomes almost like a living uh you know legacy you know um that's that's why I sort of like seeing pictures of you as a as a child and hearing about your parents and hearing about your schooling and all that sort of stuff because that all became who you were now, you know. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, and who you are now. So a, psych- a psychologist would probably give you a pretty detailed rundown about why and what drives you. And you know, there's a lot of references to that, especially at this point in my life. Where yeah. If you look back on your history, it makes sense to some degree because of your upbringing or whatever. There's one
1: thing I didn't ask you, is that you started playing guitar around 12, 13, you said, right? Just mm-hmm. similar to me. Uh, now, did you continue playing sports? Were you, were, okay, tell me about your sports. Did you play sports through school leading up to that time? And did you continue after you started playing guitar?
2: Yeah, I mean, I played, you know, like most kids in a community level. You know, it wasn't serious like the way they have here my son's baseball and they're doing professional camps and they're going on these paid trips to – yeah, it's like a cost of fortune, you know, and it's so intense. And they're ex-pro, I'm on and on and on. And hockey is no different up there. you got to know the right people and get in the right programs. That's, that's why you see so many kids that are sons of players, because they know what it took to get to that level. And you have to have the right direction, you know, as a young person. So, Which is why you, you know, don't
1: see, that's why you don't see so many ethnic people playing in the hockey, in hockey. It's not their inability. It's the fact that there just wasn't the money. The amount of money it takes to get a kid through hockey is ridiculous. Ooh.
2: I know, and never mind the equipment. Just the actual the training at what it costs. So anyway, I, I think it's there's some of that, you know. I, but my sport thing was always a real casual community level. I played high, uh, not community football. When I was fifteen, sixteen, and a guy went to school with. Uh, he went on to become a college player. played for SFU and was drafted and played in the CFL. It was. And for three, four years, and I thought that was pretty cool that a guy that I grew up with in my neighborhood went on to be a professional football player. So there was a chance that you may have made it your profession, but pretty slim. You have to have all the right pieces in place physically and mentally and all that and and everything else. So, but no, all my sports was community level. I played a little bit of hockey until I was 13 or so. And then as soon as music came in, a lot of the sports kind of went on the back burner and uh, I started getting to music, music more. And that was until my early, mid-20s, and I started trying to skate again. And I met up with people and go play at four rinks or eight rinks, whatever you want to call it. Yeah, four
1: rinks was where everybody went, yeah. Because you could get ice time after the clubs closed.
2: Yeah, and then if you played at 10 o'clock at night on a Thursday, it would be $15, and you go play shinny with a bunch of guys. And that's kind of what I did right up until the point where I left. And and I still do that here now. Uh, I better
1: explain what I meant about that ethnic thing, and because uh, it, it may be misinterpreted. Uh, what I was talking more about is having means and, and the privilege that a person with money... It because it takes a lot of money to put a person through things like that, and a lot of ethnic families just didn't have that kind of money. That's what I meant by it, just so people don't misconstrue
2: what oh, I said. And it's, not, it's like people that have recently immigrated and they're you know for whatever reason, and it's more about just surviving the system and getting started. So, uh, believe me, yeah. uh, professional hockey is probably way far down the line, so yeah, absolutely. So, anyway, that that's kind of the sports. I, I kind of gave it up and then kind of cut back into it, and so I was playing soccer, I was playing. I played touch football in this Lower Mainland league in uh, around eighty early eighties with my brother, and uh, I think I helped trash me knees a little bit. But I, it was—I I always enjoyed physical activity, and you know—and I look at pictures of myself. Like I should have been a gym teacher or something, you know. But uh,
1: which and- which brings us to this thing. You guys were playing at the paddock in Regina. We were playing at the Sahara night with Shama. You guys were there with Bowser Moon, and we had a baseball tournament. Remember that? Oh, oh my gosh! And you, you bastards, you brought in a ringer for a pitcher. The guy, the guy actually played league baseball. <laughs> oh my but I think we won by one run because <laughs> we we recruited whatever people were coming out to the club, which were mostly drunks. <laughs> oh that was hilarious.
2: I did play in a mixed softball league with Bruce Allen, and he had a team with Dave Chesney at Columbia. Oh and- wow. And uh, it was called the Warriors, and I came in. That's how I trashed my knee the first time and uh, shagging a fly, and and we it was fun. It was people in in the record business and and Bruce and a couple other people, and it it was okay. But I I trashed my knee, and then I went back the next year, and then I was so
1: so. Who's who's your teams? Who do you go for?
2: Okay, don't hate baseball, football, hockey. I'll start with hockey because that's what I grew up with, and uh, of course, everybody when you're that young. It's Toronto or Montreal, you know, choose one or the other. But as I got older, I chose Boston. And I remember. was a Boston
1: fan too. Well, wow, that that was during the uh, Bobby Orr, Phil Esposito, yeah. of course, because he's from Sault Ste. Marie.
2: That's right. And so we were the same thing. Bobby Orr, oh my gosh, the second coming. So yeah. you hit your, your wagon to that train. And and that I've been a Bruins fan ever since. And 2011 was like science fiction because I was overseas watching the final and... The last game and I was with a bunch of people. I was the only Bruins fan in the entourage and they wanted to kill me. So <laughs> I felt bad for the fans because they waited so long and they had a great team that year and it just just didn't work out. You know, it just it's tragic. It was much like it did for the Bruins this year. They had all the pieces they yeah. get pushed out by the Panthers. So uh,
1: you know, the playoffs more and more and is it's all about the goalie.
2: Yeah. You, yeah. Know,
1: you see that when you look at the shots on net. And who wins? It's generally always the shots on that favors the losing team.
2: Yeah. So, almost always. So I don't really follow football so much anymore, but baseball um, uh, has always been the Yankees since I was a kid because of Mickey Mantle. So oh. it's kind of, that's about the extent of it for me. And, you know, I don't really go farther than that. So yeah, cool. Well, yeah. great talking and to you, you, brother. And you I, as well. And you yeah. Know,
1: all the best to you and your family. Yeah, well, hopefully we can connect in September. I'd love to have you over to the house. I,
2: I, do you know if your family's going to be with you? Uh, possibly. My, my daughter for sure because she's up at UBC and she's vowed to come. And we'll we promised to have tea at the Empress. So. Oh, no, oh, perfect! Yeah, yeah. you got to experience I know. that. Yeah, <laughs> we love that. We love that. So um, do that, and but possibly Paula, but I don't know. My son will be in college, so he uh, here, so that'll be it. But I'll, I'll be looking forward to seeing you, regardless. Yeah, we'll
1: we'll figure it out somehow. Thanks a lot, Keith. Yeah, thank you for having Take me. Take care, buddy. brother. Have a great day.
2: See you soon. All right. Cheers, child. man. Bye. Bye.